You're listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast. This week, we bring you a five-part series of messages that John Blanchard presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982. John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, former co-director of Christian Ministries in Surrey, England, and an international conference speaker. Now, here is John Blanchard on Today in the Word radio. During the mornings of this week, we have been taking the opportunity to read one chapter through the letter of James. And then, as I suggested on one of the occasions, we've been using a helicopter to do this so that we've had the opportunity of, of pausing in the course of the flight over the chapter and stopping over one verse, or one group of verses, and then spending some time examining and studying them and asking the Lord to make their meaning real to us and apply them to our hearts. And this morning we read through the fourth chapter of James's letter. Turn now and concentrate all of our attention during this time on verse 10. James chapter 4 and verse 10, where the writer says, Humble yourselves in the and he shall lift you up. And that is the entire body of text that we will be studying uh, during this session. One of the greatest theologians the world has ever known called Aurelius Augustinius. He was born in the year 387 uh, in North Africa. He later became the Bishop of Hippo, and he is much better known, not by that rather long Latin name, by the shortened version of it, just as Augustine or as St. Augustine. And many of his sayings have passed into legend almost within the Christian church. They become such uh, marvelous examples, condensed in the way that was uh, his method of doing it. He had many memorable sayings, including this. For those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second, and humility is the third. Now, was that an exaggeration? Was he overdoing it? Could he have uh, brought in other things in terms of our practical Christian living? Well, Let's compare that to what Scripture says from the Old Testament. God has showed you, O man, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? Now, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Micah chapter 6 and verse 8. To walk humbly humbly with your God. Let me make two very brief introductory comments. Surely the only way a man can walk with God is when he walks in humility. He is certainly not superior to God. He is certainly not God's equal. So the only way he can walk with him, if I may put it that way, is actually to walk behind him. In our country, in Britain, of course, we have a, a queen and we have the queen's husband, the Duke of Edinburgh. And if you've ever on formal occasions, you will always notice that the Duke of Edinburgh, although he is, of course, of tremendous uh, fame and importance and so forth within the land, always walks behind the sovereign. Now, they're married to each other. 
marvelous, uh, intimate relationship of husband and wife, but he's not her equal, not in the eyes of the law and in the eyes of uh, the monarchy and the tradition and all that goes to make England such a unique place. No, no, he's behind her. He walks with her, but never alongside her in terms of equality, always behind her. In other words, he assumes a position of humility. He walks with the sovereign, but behind her that signifies that she is superior to him. And so here, if we are to walk with the Lord, we don't walk with him as equals. He's not our buddy. We walk in humility. We walk at all. The second thing is to say this, that of all the religions in the world, there is none that places such an emphasis on humility and conversely on pride as does the Christian faith. It is unique among religious systems known to man in the emphasis and the virtue it gives to humility and the emphasis and the vice that it points pride out to be. Well, now, having said that, let me tell you that our study this morning will be very simple and obvious headings, and the first is this, for the many who take notes on these sessions, the first is the principle that is stressed. The principle that is stressed here. Now there are many references uh, in James directly to humility and to pride. The point to notice about this particular statement is how the principle is stressed, and let me put that in these ways. First of all, it's stressed in a straightforward manner. James, humble yourselves. Now, there is the ultimate economy of words, surely. Just two. Humble yourselves. No beating about the bush. No exceptions made. No excuses. Humble yourselves. Get down off your pedestal. Cross out the capital I. Just two words. Humble yourselves. But I wonder if there are two words of exhortation, direction, if there are two, if there is one imperative statement in the whole of the New Testament that we need more than this in our Christian lives. If these two words all the other texts that festoon our homes and our churches and all the other places where we feel we ought to Put up something from Scripture just to uh, keep us going along and keep us mindful of what God is saying. If this were to the others so that when we sat down to a meal, when we met with friends, when we drove our cars, when we exercised our business relationships, when we worked in our studies, when we relaxed in our dens, if these two words were and more than that were impressed upon our hearts, I believe that there would be a revolution in our lives. What an impact, surely, they would make. Many years ago, the uh, paper in England called The Times, which we would say is the most famous newspaper in the world. I believe many people would say that. Its nickname is The Thunderer. And The Times newspaper, many years ago, carried a correspondence column uh, the correspondence column of the Times is something almost as important as Hansard, which is the record of Parliament. And uh, there was a correspondence on the subject, what's wrong with the world? Well, now, that opens uh, the door to all... 
it's being raised, and that was the subject. What's wrong with the world? And the correspondence ebbed and flowed uh, for quite some time. The best letter of all was the briefest. It was written by a very famous man, Chesterton. And uh, this was his letter. I can quote it in full. I can memorize it from beginning to end. This is what it said. Don't forget, the subject is, what's wrong with the world? Here was his letter. Dear Sir, I yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. <laughs> now, that's a very telling statement. I don't suppose G.K. Chesterton for a moment would have claimed to have been a born-again evangelical Christian. He had. What's wrong with the world? Dear sir, I am. I am what's wrong with the world. Before I go around trying to correct other people, I need to get my own house in order. A man who seeks to be a critic and begins with himself will have no time to take on outside contracts. What's wrong with the world? I am. And in so many of the situations about which we complain, the tensions and frustrations, the real problem is the capital I. You've heard it said that I is at the very heart of sin. S-I-N. I sometimes uh, look with interest at analyses that are made about uh, sicknesses, illnesses, diseases in the world today and uh, the ebb and flow of statistics and, and which is the most prevalent disease in this country or that country or the third world or the affluent parts of the world and so forth. But do you spread the commonest disease in every nation in the world today is eye trouble. That's the commonest disease, eye trouble. Well, let me begin at the his text. These words come immediately after he has been stressing the need for continuous repentance and faith. Just glance, if you will, at verses 8 and 9, and especially about the need to draw near to God and cleanse our hands and to be a and so forth. What James is speaking about there is repentance and faith. And to go straight on to say, humble yourselves, is to remind us that not even repentance and faith are things about which we, which we can... In fact, the Bible teaches that repentance and faith are gifts from God before they ever become works by man. Now we need to remember that. And let me go back to something I was saying earlier in the week, that in so much today, the emphasis is entirely on man's ability to do things, his ability even to come to God, whereas the biblical emphasis is on his inability to do those things. We have reached the stage today in some of preaching when you can almost imagine a man being proud of the fact that he was smart enough to repent or was smart enough to believe. But the Bible puts the emphasis entirely elsewhere. Let me give you two scriptures to nail this home. Acts 5.31 at Jerusalem that God had raised Jesus from the dead and, quote, exalted him to his own right hand as prince and savior that he might give repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Do you see what God gives? He does not merely give forgiveness. He gives the repentance that leads to forgiveness. Or... John chapter 6 and verse 35. 
in that area to come to the Lord. And then, but no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. Unless the Father draws us and enables us, gives us the gift of faith. Why, we all repeat, by grace are you saved through faith. And that, that is that faith, not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. It's not by works, so no one can boast about it. Repentance and faith are great. They're not goals we achieve. They're things that God works in us. They're not things that we work and which God then rewards by giving us a new life. And of course, the same is true as we move on. In We should always be making progress, but we should never become proud of the progress we're making. There's a fine balance here, and it's beautifully seen in Paul's statement, by the grace of God, I am what I am. He says two things. He does not say, I'm the same as I've always been. There's no change in my life. No, he says, I am what I am. He doesn't say, I am what I've always been. No, I am what I am. There's a change. There's a difference. There's a new life. I am what I am, not what I always was. But that sounds like boasting. So he precedes it by saying, he prefaces it by saying, by the grace of God, I am what I am. So he tells the truth. I am what I am, not what I have always been. And he tells the whole truth. It's by the grace of God that I am what I am. It's nothing for which I have any credit at all. He couldn't deny that his life had changed, but he didn't claim any credit for it. The growth had been by grace. Now let me get back to the text in James and bring out one other truth, and that is that the original Greek was a passive voice. Now, without getting too technical, the simple thing to say about that is this. That when a verb is in the passive voice, what it's trying to tell us is that it's essentially not something that we do by our own unaided effort. Something for which the power to achieve comes from outside of us. The grammarians use the phrase passive. Of course, we are not entirely passive. We have to take steps to see that we are brought to a reality. But the emphasis is that the power to do so comes from outside of ourselves, that is to say, from God. Practically speaking, it means that we cannot boast of our humility as being something that we have achieved. We have a lady who went to her pastor one day and said, Oh, pastor, I've been so blessed under your ministry and, and through the reading of the word and so forth, and I want you to tell you that I've made tremendous progress in my Christian life. In fact, I believe I have reached the stage where I have perfect humility. And the pastor said, well, that's wonderful. You must be very proud of that. And she said, oh, I am. <laughs> now, you see the line of teaching? Humility is not something that we achieve and can therefore be proud of. It's something that God does for us. And therefore, the more humble we become, then the greater our humility at what God does in our lives. Now, that's the general line of teaching. And, of course, no part of life that we know is one in which this is not relevant. But perhaps the area where I could pause for a moment to emphasize it would be the area of Christian service. 
and the Christian church is bulging with opportunities to be proud. We are just full of organizations and committees and councils and boards and offices. We are absolutely swarms and titles. Everybody, it seems, is a chief. Nobody's an Indian in the Christian church. I sometimes get that very distinct impression. And what opportunities that are there for pride. What it is, men sometimes think more of their titles, more of their position than they do of their spiritual condition. Do you remember John speaking of Diotrephes in the third epistle of John in the ninth verse? His epitaph was this. He loves to have the preeminence. He loves to be first. He loves to be number one. Well, we don't hear much about Diotrephes in the New Testament. He wanted to be number one, but he's way down about number 320. Or anything more about him? Is there an echo there in your own heart? That old nature always has an appetite for eminence, always wants to be number one. What God's word has to say about it. Well, he emphasizes it in a straightforward manner. Secondly, with a supreme motive. Straightforward manner, supreme motive. Humble yourselves before the Lord, or as King in the sight of the Lord. The Greek word is enopion, and it carries with it the sense of having a thing or a person in mind. Enopion, having, having the Lord as we humble ourselves. The kind of word that David uses, uh, or rather Peter does, quoting David in Acts 2.25, I saw the Lord always before me. I always had in mind that the Lord was actually there before me. Now that's the phrase James is using here. And in David's case, it meant that in all of his trials, David was sustained by meditating on the presence and the power of God. Now do you see the relevance to humility? There were some men, was it not Francis of Assisi among them, who used to speak about practicing the presence of God. And to some that would sound rather, rather pietistic, and they're not really sure the kind of language the Bible uses and so forth. Perhaps of no practical value. I'm going to suggest that nothing in the world could have such a practical impact upon us as practicing the presence of God. We just use the word God. It rather tends to, to burst out beyond all of our mental grasp. So let's instead think of God in terms of the Lord Jesus Christ. After all, he was a man. And we can perhaps think of God in terms of Christ. Now think of a day. Think of a day in your life in which you will act and speak and work and rest, and play, read, and watch as if you were in the literal, physical presence of the Lord Jesus Christ. But he got up with you in the morning, sat with you at breakfast table, read the newspaper with you, drove to work with you, closed that business with you, went to that club with you, socialized with you, discussed other people with you. He was there the whole time. He was there at home, over the meal, watching a television program, 
watching your relationship with your wife, husband, children, parents, that he was alongside of you there at your place of business as you made that deal, received that telephone call, signed that contract, drove that bargain, filled in that tax, filled that situation. He was there. And in church, he came with you to church, sat there in the pew, joined in the conversation before the service began, listened to the sermon with you, taught with you, taught the Sunday school class, was there alongside of you as the offering plate came around, was there as the message was given, was there as you sang the hymns, was there as you went into the pulpit. Can you catch the spirit of James's word? Humble yourselves as if the Lord himself were physically there with you. Doesn't that become a serious? Of course, it becomes so serious that for some people it would be overwhelming. In fact, more than that, demoralizing, almost depressing. Oh, if, if the Lord himself, if Jesus himself were there with me in the course of a day, never leaving my just be paralyzed into inactivity because I would be afraid to do anything that might grieve him. Well, you know, it should do exactly the opposite. David was deeply conscious of his own weakness. And yet, listen to what he says in Psalm 139. As he specifically contemplates the fact that God knows every word and thought and action. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. Too lofty for Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there will your hand guide me and your right hand will hold me fast. You see, as far as David was concerned, he didn't despair at God's presence with him. He delighted in it. He rejoiced that God was there. God was with him. God did see him and hear him, listen to him, watch him, observe him, and not miss a thing. Because he knew that the Lord was there to strengthen and sustain him, not just to criticize him over the knuckles when he didn't fly straight. He recognized that God's presence was a gracious presence and not a judgmental one. And that positive note takes us on to the second part of the verse. The first, the principle that is stressed. Secondly, of course, and obviously you could fill in this heading, the promise that is stated. The principle that is stressed and the promise that is stated. Humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord and will lift you up. And this wonderful promise is stated in four ways, believe it or not. In those words alone, there are four things that are said. In fact, we can take the words exactly which we have them. First of all, the promise is made in provisional terms. And he will lift you up. Now, what does the word and tell us? Well, the word and is a conjunction. It links what James is now to say. James has already said. And the Lord's lifting up is a conditional thing. It's a provisional thing. That is, uh, the conditions have to be met before the promise can be claimed. There would be no 
the latter part of this verse and putting that on our walls as a, as a plaque and a, a reminder to us of one of God's promises. The Lord shall lift you up and then polish that every day and says, isn't that wonderful? God has promised to lift me up. Now, let me say very carefully, understand me. No, God hasn't promised to lift you up. He hasn't. No good chopping that bit out of Scripture and framing it and putting it on your wall. God hasn't promised to lift you up. Not unconditionally. If you go around strutting and posturing and, and assuming positions of pride and arrogance, God hasn't promised to lift you up. He's promised to do the opposite. He'll press you down. So you see, it's stated in, in provisional terms. And many of God's promises are provisional. If my people, which are called by my name, shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then heaven forgive their sin and heal their land. My dear friends, you and I live in lands that desperately need healing. And maybe, maybe from heaven's view, the real guilty people in our lands today are not the unconverted who don't know any better. Maybe the real root of our nation's problems lie, lies in the church. That we humbled ourselves as we should. We've not prayed as we should. We've not turned from our wicked ways as we should. And how paradoxical it must seem that may be the greatest stumbling block to revival in our land, not the overwhelming mass of unconverted people, but those who are the Lord's and who are not meeting his conditions for the healing of the land. It's stated in provisional terms. Martin Luther said, it's to make something out of nothing. And that is why he cannot make anything out of him who is not yet nothing. Is that the reason why some areas of our Christian service are so ineffective? Big for God to use, but never too small. And if we will not humble ourselves, if we insist on carrying on in the energy of the flesh and with our own glory as the motive, then God will not bless us. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs are the kingdom of God. There are several Greek words for poor, and the one that's used there in the Sermon on the Mount is a word that means having absolutely nothing. And only when we in our absolutely nothing will God use us as we should. I'm going to insert an illustration, forgive it being so intensely personal, but the Lord called me into full-time ministry uh, in 1961. And... I left the little Channel Island of Guernsey, came over to live in England and began a ministry of, well, mainly evangelism in those days. It later broadened out into evangelism and uh, Bible teaching. I was taken under the wing of a senior evangelist, a great man of God who's been such a means of blessing in my life. Indeed, the man under whose ministry I was called into full-time Christian work. And we used to go out there in the rural areas of the West Country in England and uh, either pitch a tent uh, some little community hall and uh, there have an evangelistic revival, maybe for a week or two weeks or whatever. And we were in one little place in North Devon, a tiny little community. You could literally have hit a tennis ball from one end of 
It was just a very microscopic little place. We pitched a tent out there in the field among the cows and went around and told people we were going to be preaching at night and folk came along to those services. That man was so gracious. He was quite well known in the area. Comparatively, I thought quite a lot of people came, maybe 50, 60, 70 people in the tent each night. And he, although he was so much more experienced and a great orator, I felt, um, said to me, now, John, you will preach every other night. Every I said, Frank, really, no, nobody's coming to hear me. They all want to hear you. Why don't you, I'll preach maybe once a week. And he said, no, 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 I'll preach tonight, you preach tomorrow. I'll preach the next night, you preach the night after. Well, bless his heart, that was his ministry, encouragement. And he just wanted to, to press me forward and, and have me just develop and grow in the ministry. Well, I remember one night it was, my, it was going to be my turn to preach and, uh, because he had preached the previous night. And I got up that morning and I really ought to prepare a great message for tonight. And so I began to get down and study all day. And, and the harder I studied, the more difficult it got. And after, when we got to the afternoon, he said, why don't you come out for a break? We'll just go out for half an hour's walk. Oh, no, I'm for tonight. And then around six o'clock, uh, would you like to come and have uh, some supper with us? No, I'm preparing this message for the service tonight. Well, this went on and the great moment came and the service was held and we had the singing and all of that. And I got up to preach. Well, I wish I hadn't got up. It was dreadful. And... Uh, of course, the harder it got, the longer I preached. I was determined to, to get there in the end. Every preacher knows that experience. I wish I had heard the person who said, if you don't strike oil after 10 minutes. And, uh, uh, well, I just went on and on in the hope that I'd get there eventually. And I didn't get there eventually, but uh, service ended. We were staying in the same little farmhouse. That's how I felt it was. I just felt there was a real barrier between me and everybody else. And I, they were all just so sorry for me. And they had every reason to be. I was sorry for myself. And then time came to go to bed and uh, my room and said, uh, first thing he'd said from the end of the service till then, he said, why don't we have some prayer together? I said, that'd be fine. So we got down on our knees and we began to pray. He prayed first. He could pray like an angel. And... Uh, uh, forget this. He told the Lord uh, how wonderfully the Lord was going to use me in the future. He thanked the Lord for saving me, for calling me into the ministry, for giving me such gifts, for blessing the Lord under one's ministry. He then projected himself into the future and, and thanked the Lord for all of the places the Lord was going to lead me, all of the blessing there was going to be. I could hardly believe what I was hearing. And then he finished. He must have prayed for And then I realized, of course, that it would be assumed that I was going to pray. And I could take you to the room. I could take you to the spot at the bedside where I began to pray. And I said, Lord, and this with an echo of a ten in my ears, Lord, you know that I'm nothing. And I have nothing. And then I cried and cried and cried like a child. I got up from that bedside and carried on in the ministry. And as far as I honestly recall, for the next six months, there was never one single service that I addressed that had a 
context to it where there were not people who professed conversion. Every service, didn't matter whether it was half a dozen people or in a school or in an adult rally or a church, regular Sunday service, wherever. Everywhere I went for six months, in every service, there was evidence that people were finding Christ. And I am almost reluctant to tell you that, and I tell it as much against myself as for myself, but as an evidence that there must be in our lives a genuine humbling of ourselves if God is going to bless us, and how simple that is, and yet how almost impossibly difficult. But it's in provisional terms. Secondly, it's in powerful terms. He will lift you up. Pride is so often an attempt to lift ourselves up. We want to justify ourselves and to prove ourselves. Now, there's no need for that. In fact, that's folly. We cannot ultimately ourselves up to a place of real spiritual exaltation. Only God can put us there. There's no point in a Christian using worldly behavior in order to get somewhere, whether it's in the world there's no point in that. The only places worth getting to are those to which God lifts us. The other places aren't worth getting to. It's in all terms. He will lift you up. Thirdly, it's in positive terms. He will lift you up. Just as there's no escaping the condition, there's no denying the promise. He will lift you up. So often in Scripture, the problem is to know when to stop quoting. But let me give you three instances, and the interesting thing about them is that there are three separate occasions, and almost identical terms are used. One is in the context of salvation, one is in the context of one is in the context of social life. And here they are. Let me give you the references first of all, and then you can jot them uh, down. The first is in Luke 18. And the second is in Matthew 23. This is the point at which I say I've quite forgotten where the third is. Uh, so that'll send you off to your concordances, and that'll be quite easy for you to dig it out. The first is in the context of, of salvation. Do you remember the story of the Pharisee and the tax? And the end of that parable was in these words, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. The second was in the context of service. To the ostentatious Pharisees. In Matthew 23, Jesus said, whoever exalts himself will be humbled and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. And the third occasion when we're Jesus Jesus was teaching the wisdom of taking the lowest place at the meal table and not making for the head table. And he wound up by saying, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted. You see, it's a bedrock kingdom of God and we ignore it at our peril. Let me say again, we can be too big for God to use. We can be too big for God to bless we can be too big for God to make fruitful, but we cannot be too small in our own sight and in our own eyes. And fourthly, the promise is stated in practical terms, not only in provisional terms and in powerful terms and in positive terms, but in practical terms. 
you up. The original uh, word means to lift to a place of dignity and blessing. And we can apply that in two ways. Firstly, there's a blessing at present. That is to say, the person who is humble is blessed in this life. Sometimes the blessing flows in alongside the humility. They are concurrent with each other. Here's an example. Paul in 2 Corinthians 12 and verse 10. When, then I am strong. When, then. The two going together. As Paul recognizes his own worthlessness, his own weakness, then the strength and the power of God are there alongside of it. When I am weak, then the humility and the lifting up flowing together as a simultaneous experience. At other times, the outworking of the promise may be delayed. And the person who assumes the humble position may not obviously it up. There may be no apparent blessing or surge of fruitfulness or whatever in their service. The promise may be delayed, but it's never denied. God's lifting up will follow our Someone has said God's mercy seeks the guilty, his power the weak, his wisdom the ignorant, and his love the lost. And we can add this, and his grace the humble. As water will always find its way to the lowest part of the earth, so the grace of God will always find its way to the person who is lowest in that person's own sight. There's blessing at present, that is to say, in this life. And secondly, of course, there's blessing in prospect. There's blessing in the future life. Matthew Henry, the great commentator who died in 1740, the highest honor in heaven will be the reward of the greatest humility on earth. And of course, we have the perfect example of that in the Lord Jesus. Let this do which was also in Christ Jesus, says Paul in Philippians 2. And then follows uh, that wonderful passage which climaxes, as we shall see when we read it, which climaxes in the Lord Jesus Christ, which is almost beyond words and certainly beyond our understanding. Let this mind be in you, who was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, now let me did not think that equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself of no reputation, took upon him the form of a servant, was made in the likeness of man, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now you've reached the very bottom. The eternal God humbled himself, nothing, took upon him the form of a servant, made in the likeness of man, humbled himself even to death on a cross. Therefore, God highly exalted him, given him a name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus 
is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is the ultimate humility from heaven to earth, from the throne to the cross, from God to eternity to time. And here is the greatest exaltation, a name that is above every name. God has exalted him to that place. Just as we can never match that awesome humility, we will never match that unspeakable glory. Nevertheless, he is the supreme example that we should strive to follow. Peter has a passage very similar to this of James. Clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. Oh, and incidentally, notice that clothing covers a person. Clothing covers the person. When we're clothed with humility, people don't see us. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Let me interrupt again. The word for opposes in the Greek is a word that would be used of an army deliberately setting itself in array against another army. Here is the commander-in-chief uh, with his army on this uh, side of this mountain. There is, the, there is the mountain on the other side. And he sees the deployment of the other forces. And seeing where the enemy has gone, he deliberately sets his forces in array against them to provide a perfect defense for his position. And that is what James uses here of God. He sets himself in array like a commander-in-chief ordering his forces against the person who is proud. I find that one of the most devastating statements in the whole of Scripture. That the God who is the Lord of hosts, who has angels and archangels and cherubim and seraphim and sun and moon and stars and every human being on the face of this globe at his entire disposal, that God arranges all of his the person who lifts his fist against God. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Peter says, humble yourself under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Now, in some measure, that due time will be here on earth as God graciously touches your life. In some measure... That will be true. And in fullest measure, God's due time will be when those who've walked humbly with him on earth will receive their promised reward in heaven. The principle that is stressed, straightforward manner, no ifs or buts, humble yourselves. The supreme motive, because you live each day in the sight of the Lord. And then the promise is stated, he will lift you up. It's provisional, and he will lift you up. It's powerful, and he will lift you up. It's positive, he will lift you up. And it's practical, he will lift you up. And may God graciously enable us so to fulfill the condition that we will be able to claim the promise both here and there. You've been listening to the Today in the Word radio podcast.
Five Messages John Blanchard Presented at Moody Keswick Bible Conference 1982 John Blanchard is a preacher, evangelist, author, former co-director of Christian Ministries in Surrey, England, and an international conference speaker. Audio copies of messages from the podcast are available at moodyaudio.com. Today in the Word Radio is a production of Moody Radio, a ministry of the Moody Bible Institute.